anything wrong with this situation. He took a pinch in the back. He got beaten for crying out loud. We used heart attack. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over with the Germans bomb pro The castration of the major league baseball managers, we know it. Ask me about my winner. Relief pitcher Paul Seawald is in his second year with the Seattle Mariners after four seasons pitching for the New York Mets. During his time with the New York Mets as a reliever, he pitched in 125 games. He was the winning pitcher in just one game. Paul Seawald last night pitched for the Seattle Mariners against the New York Mets and was the winning pitcher. Paul Seawald has one win in 125 appearances for the Mets. He has one win in one appearance for the Seattle Mariners against the Mets. So I what I what I like to do is I like to listen to narratives and overstated um, I don't want to say garbage, but it just becomes just kind of regular parable when it comes to the world of sports talk and you hear same thing kind of followed by same thing. And I'm going to poke a hole in two playoff exits that we saw since the last time we we did a show philadelphia 76ers lost um a game to the miami heat that by the fourth quarter and as the stretch of the game was going down it was pretty obvious that the 76ers were no longer in and the golden state warriors eliminated the memphis grizzlies in what i'm going to say similar fashion now what's been stated many times is that the memphis grizzlies are a young team they're an up-and-coming team and they have a bright future. Perhaps they could overtake the likes of the Golden State Warriors and the Phoenix Suns and the other high echelon teams that we see, at least on paper, in a Western Conference over the course of the next couple of years. And I agree that the Memphis Grizzlies are a very deep team. They're a very good team and are going to be a driving force in the NBA and what's good about the sport for the next five-plus seasons. What I don't believe is the fact that it's okay for the Memphis Grizzlies to go out the way they did. Because I don't see anything different in what the Memphis Grizzlies, the way they lost Game 6 at at Golden State against the Warriors, to the way that the Philadelphia 76ers lost Game 6 at home against the Miami Heat. The criticism of the Philadelphia 76ers was James Harden took two shots, They lacked the toughness. Joel Embiid went out on the offensive again against his teammates saying, hey, they're not tough enough. P.J. Tucker's on the other side. He's tough. We don't have anybody like P.J. Tucker. And then the Memphis Grizzlies are going to get a lot of accolades. I think a lot of the national media is going to say that they had a good season. A lot of the national media is going to say that maybe it wasn't their time yet. They're up and coming. And it's okay that they lost a six-game series to the Golden State Warriors. And while all that sounds great, I'm going to try to poke a couple holes in it. Because I think the Memphis Grizzlies were the better team against the Golden State Warriors. Now, you say, hey, that's you know sounds kind of childish. You know, Nobody says that after a team loses. My point is not that I'm talking about Memphis being better. I'm saying Memphis should have won the series. The Grizzlies had great performances in games four and six. Leads in the second half in both games. 
and an opportunity to beat a Golden State team that everybody keeps saying is so much better than them. From the Warriors aspect, from Draymond Green and Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and Andrew Wiggins and Jordan Poole and Mike Brown filling in for Steve Kerr who isn't able to coach because of the coronavirus. Listen, they deserve all the accolades in the world. They did an outstanding job against the Memphis Grizzlies. They played well. But I'll tell you this, Memphis played them tough defensively. Memphis made a lot of their shots difficult. That 3-for-26 that you saw in Game 4 from players not named Otto Porter from the three-point line up to a certain point in that game had a lot to do with the strength of the Memphis defense. Now, you could talk about the fact that they may be a better team without John Morant. John Morant's that star that's going to bring up the ball and he's going to make his own shot. You know, there's a lot of players in the NBA that are like that, and they're, they're valued. When you're talking about the best team, I think they actually have a championship caliber team without John Morant. Now, if they can find some way to balance, you know, Ja's ball handling and wanting to handle the ball abilities with the balance of that team, I think they got an NBA championship in their future. And like I said, this is nothing different than what the national media is going to tell you. But what they're going to tell you that's wrong is the fact that the Memphis Grizzlies, it was okay for the Golden State Warriors to beat them. The Grizzlies had chances in Game 4 and Game 6 to win. I think could have won those series in 6 themselves. They didn't. And like I said, that goes to the credit of the Golden State Warriors first. This wasn't a series of Memphis blew it and Golden State won. It was kind of a combination of both. And this narrative that's going to go out there, certainly in the area of Philadelphia, Philadelphia Sports Talk is going to be knocking the 76ers, knocking the process, knocking uh, the team without Joel, Joel Embiid or other than Joel Embiid not having that depth. But I'll tell you, Tyrese Maxey is probably a top 15 or so player in the NBA right now. And if you don't believe that, I'd say name me 15 players in the NBA that are better and more valuable than Tyrese Maxey. You got Embiid and Maxi there. Is James Harden that extra player that you need to put you over the top? Well, in a big game, in a big moment, it didn't seem like James Harden rose to the occasion. And if I'm a Sixer fan, I have an issue with that. If I'm a National Basketball fan, I have an issue about it. But my question is this. What did the 76ers do that was so much worse than what the Memphis Grizzlies did in Game, in game 6? Because I'm looking in a mirror almost, mirror images of teams that did the exact same thing. They didn't show up under pressure. When the game got a little tough and they got down by a couple baskets, all of a sudden they stopped playing defense. When Golden State, after Miami, both started hitting shots in big moments, you saw a little of a sulk. The shoulders started to drip, droop for both of those teams. And like I said, there was a lack of effort on the defensive end in the last five minutes of both of those game sixes. Now you could talk about Doc Rivers being on the hot seat. Daryl Morey, the general manager, says that Doc Rivers is coming back. You know, Should the, the Grizzlies coach be on the hot seat as well? Because I'm looking at... Two teams that, like I said, did the exact same thing.
one of them is going to be destroyed in the national media. And the other one are going to be looked at as darlings of the NBA. And that it was quite okay for them as the number two seed to not make it past the second round of the playoffs. Now, like I said, nobody's out there saying that this was their only chance. Nobody's out there saying that the Memphis Grizzlies aren't going to get back and probably be better next season than they are this season. But that performance you saw last night in the fourth quarter can be attributed a little bit to Golden State, the veteran, the leadership that's there, rising to the occasion. But I'm knocking Taylor Jenkins here a little bit. That team died. That team quit in the fourth quarter. Last five minutes of that game, they didn't get put up much of a fight. And it was nothing different than what you saw from the Philadelphia 76ers in game six. So what am I, what am I saying? I'm saying you're looking at two of the, the exact same things that happened in key games in the, East, in the Eastern and Western Conference semifinals. And one of them is going to be portrayed by the media as a choke job, as a team quitting, as James Harden can't play in the playoffs and can't show up when it matters the most. And the other one's going to be kind of just pushed off the back. Hey, the Memphis Grizzlies are a young team. They're going to be back next year. They got a lot to be proud of. And to me, I think it's a hypocrisy. And I have a hard time identifying with that. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to talk about Philadelphia and maybe it's time for some change. Maybe it's time for them to bring in, like Embiid said, a P.J. Tucker type for their defense. But one of the things that hurt the 76ers in Game 6 was the injury to Danny Green. Danny Green hit some key shots, but he's also one of the few 76er players that plays defense most of the time. He is one of their best defensive players. And him being out, Obviously, the rest of that game and would have been the rest of the postseason since it's an ACL injury, that hurt the 76ers. That set them back. Now, Memphis was playing without John Morant, but and he can make the case in, in, in a weird NBA as it is right now that the Memphis Grizzlies have more of a balanced and d- deep team without John Morant than they do with him. But once again, 76ers are going to take blame for their second round loss. And the Memphis Grizzlies are almost being praised for theirs. When the teams did the exact same thing in game six of the respective Eastern Conference semifinals. So the New Orleans Saints went out there and got themselves Jarvis Landry. And this is a team that I haven't spent a lot of time talking about as we bring up the NFL, schedule release day, which I have to throw my two cents about schedule release day. I don't think there's a more overhyped waste of a day in all of sports than schedule release day in the National Football League. Because before the schedule is even released, you know exactly who's going to be playing who. Each team's going to play their six division games. The divisions, in intra-conference and inter-conference, are already determined before the schedule is released. And then there's three other games which are already identified before the schedule is released. So all you're waiting for is what's going to be in game one, what are going to be the Monday night and Sunday night and Thursday night games. And once again, 
it's basically an opportunity for the NFL fan to stroke himself. And that's what he does. He spends all year, 365 days a year, sweating, thinking football. A lot of it is the the pro, you know, the NFL network, the fact that you got social media and the chance to talk about the sport all the time. But it's another example of the NFL fan stroking himself. And that's what he does. Hey, this is coming up, the draft. Listen, the draft was just a couple weeks ago. Now we're going to make it a big day, a big unveiling of the schedule, like it's something that somebody doesn't know about. If you're a fan of whatever team, you know what teams your your team's going to be going up against. It's the three division rivals twice. It's a, a division in conference. It's a division outside conference. Games that teams that are already identified. And all you're telling me is what the order is. I don't see anybody going nuts over the unveiling of the NBA schedule or the NHL schedule or Major League Baseball schedule. Which, by the way, you, they, they know you know your opponents just as much in those respective leagues as you do the National Football League. So back to the Saints, which I started out on. Jarvis Landry certainly adds to their repertoire. I, I like, you know, old... Olive, who they got from Ohio State, is a wide receiver. There's even a Michael Thomas factor, which you know you watch him over the last couple of years, and you kind of wonder what happened to him. Player with the the most receptions in a season, you know he held that record. It's a, a great record to hold. Obviously, Cooper Cup was able to pass it this past year, but Michael Thomas, one of the most feared receivers in the NFL, a, an extremely dangerous receiver. You know, you're kind of wondering what's going to be of him. And let's say he's there with Landry and Olave. You're looking at a pretty deep receiving core for Jamison Winston, for Jameis Winston, who really wants, right, the ability to, to succeed. He's got that there. And Sean Payton's not going to be there as the head coach. I think that's going to be a, a drawback. You're going to see, certainly, um, the team's going to miss his leadership. Now, they're in good hands with Dennis Allen. Dennis Allen's been on that staff for a while. He's coached in the NFL before with the Raiders. But, you know, second year with no breeze there. Winston got hurt last year. I think there's a lot riding on Jameis Winston's future in the NFL. Now, a lot of it isn't getting a lot of pub because there's all the talk about the top quarterbacks. But there's a lot of teams that are starting a quarterback that is not in that elite tier. And you wonder, as far as those quarterbacks are concerned, which ones could kind of break through and maybe move into the top tier or the upper echelon. And I think Jameis Winston is on that short list. You wonder about somebody like a Zach Wilson. You wonder about somebody like a Mac Jones in the AFC East. Two quarterbacks that... You know, you wonder in their second year how much better they're going to get. You know, Josh Allen had a rough rookie season or a rookie season that certainly wasn't on the level of what you've seen since with the Buffalo Bills. Can one of those quarterbacks become that? You know, Derek Carr is kind of right on that tier, the the teetering line. He's not quite a star, but he's uh, beyond a serviceable quarterback. You could see the Oakland Raiders winning games with Derek Carr under center. That division's going to be tough. You know, Herbert's only getting better. Russell Wilson joins the 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 AFC West from the NFC West. And, of course, there's Patty Mahomes there. 
it's hard to say that Derek Carr isn't the fourth best quarterback in that division. But you look at somebody like Jameis Winston, and I think he's somebody that from a, a fantasy football standpoint, if you want to invest, let's say, in skill players, let's say you got those multiple receivers, maybe you're able to take a Tariq Hill or a Debo Samuel early in the draft and maybe have them with the flexibility to play running back. And maybe you want to hold off. I don't know. I mean, I, th- I still think you want to get a top guy. Jameis Winston's going to be a risk. He absolutely is. But he's got weapons. And I think playing a couple years with Sean Payton, I think there's an understanding that he is going to be able to manage the football game better. You know about his raw talent and ability. And you, and you may may see the guy that was taken right after him in the draft, Marcus Mariota out of, out of Oregon playing now for the Atlanta Falcons and his former offensive coordinator, Arthur Smith. I think you see both of these quarterbacks with, I don't, I'm not going to say last chance, but if Winston goes out there with those weapons, the ones that I just mentioned, Olive, Michael Thomas, now you got Jarvis Landry there. Yeah, you're going to start to wonder whether Winston's ever going to be a starter again. And Marcus Mariota is going to get a chance. For an Atlanta team that I think clearly is rebuilding. Yeah, they got Drake London. They got Pitts there as a tight end. They got some weapons. It's a team that I think you could hand the ball or give the offense to Marcus Mariota, who's now sat a couple years after he's starting for the Tennessee Titans for his first handful of seasons. Uh, I think it's very interesting to look at how that, you know, some of the dynamics and how that could turn out. I'm happy for Robinson Cano getting a chance. It looks like he's going to play for the San Diego Padres now. Um, I, I've kind of been back and forth on whether I thought it was a good move for the Mets to release him. Um, I look at the Mets and I still think that they have a hole in the designated hitter position. Um, and it, a lot of it has to do with Dom Smith. A lot of it has to do with J.D. Davis. You're looking at two players that are, are good bench players. But I don't know if I'm taking those two players and expecting them to go out there and play every day, which is essentially what the Mets are going to be asking for. You sprinkle in a little Guillaume and Travis Jankowski because those are other guys that are on the bench. I get it. But basically, either Dom Smith or J.D. Davis is going to be in the Mets lineup every day. And I felt going into the offseason that the Mets were one, uh, one starting offensive position player away from having a deep lineup. Starling Marte makes them better. Eduardo Escobar, who is not hit, you know, he may be the answer. Maybe he starts swinging like the 30 home run guy he's been in the past. Mark Canna has been good. They missed that one supreme power bat. I don't know how they're going to get it. They may have to trade for one. Uh, as you get close to the trading deadline, there's there's players that are going to be available. And I, I kind of thought about this today. I said, hey. From an offensive standpoint, what teams are going to have those type of bats that are going to be able to help the other teams? Now, number one, you got the issue with the expanded playoffs and the 12 teams, six in each league, making a postseason. That means a lot more teams are going to think they're in things as opposed to being out of it. There's certain teams you know are out of it before the season started the Pirates, the Orioles, the Reds. I think at some point you're going to say the same thing applies to the Oakland Athletics. And then there'll be other teams, whether it's the Kansas City Royals, maybe somebody in the NL East, perhaps the Washington Nationals. 
Um, Arizona or Colorado, both of those teams have played well in spite of expectations that aren't so good for either squad. And you start to wonder which ones, ones of those teams can be rated, but can be rated to a point where good teams in Major League Baseball can benefit from having a solid, uh, from getting themselves a solid addition. But Robinson Cano with the Padres, I'm rooting for him. Listen, if there's a team that thinks Robinson Cano is good, it's the San Diego Padres. In 2019, Cano had a game at City Field, which I happen to be at, that he hit three home runs, two off of Chris Paddock, and the final, well, I think it was off of Logan Allen, and uh, I think a game where the Mets only scored five runs. And it all came on Robinson Cano home runs. So if there's a team that has watched Robinson Cano play and is like, hey, I think he, the guy's probably pretty good, he's worth a chance, certainly for the league minimum at 700000 it's the San Diego Padres. And you look at Manny Machado and Eric Hosmer, who are off to very good starts. The Padres couldn't wait to give Hosmer away. And he's been one of their best offensive position players this year. You know, they got some issues in the middle infield, whether it's Profar or, uh, you know, the, the Japanese infielder. They got a, a series of players that aren't performing. Cronenworth is a good player. But think about it. You put a Robinson Cano in there, and you even get, like, 20 home run Robinson Cano, 280 hitting Robinson Cano. That, that's, a, that's a boom for that San Diego offense. And I think you're looking at a squad right there that has gotten a little better. I don't think it's all about, you know, the addition of Robinson Cano. But like I said before, dude, there's few people that are out there that are rooting for Robinson Cano any more than I am right now. So we're going to finish off with a little NBA talk. I'm happy that there's two, uh, two of the series that are going to seven games. Phoenix and Dallas is interesting to think about because I think everybody is looking past Dallas and thinks that Phoenix is going to win this series pretty easily. Well, even if they win, it's not going to be so easy. you got Game 7 in Phoenix, a game worth watching. And you know, you've heard my take where I really felt that Phoenix and Memphis were the superior teams, and I still feel that way. Like I said, my, my comment I made before about Memphis being the better team I thought that was their series to win, and they didn't do a good job. They didn't show up in a big moment. Golden State beat them fair and square, and they deserve it. But I still feel that if I'm taking Golden State or Memphis, I'm still taking Memphis. And I feel the same way about the Phoenix Suns going up against the Dallas Mavericks. And, you know, you think of Luka Doncic, you think of Jalen Brunson, you think of a lot of the other players that have really made you know a, a, a good impact in that series you know Dwight Powell I don't have a ton of respect for I think he's just a flopper I think he, he feels like his role is to go out there and stand in there and take a foul I don't think he brings very much to the team Dorian Finney-Smith is an undrafted player that is has given them a lot of depth Maxi Kleber off the bench yeah, this is a team that's missing Tim Hardaway. Spencer Dinwiddie is a player that I've always liked. He hasn't come out too big in this in this series, but he's a guy that could go out there and, and drop 30 in a big spot. Yeah, you wonder from the standpoint of the Dallas Mavericks, is there enough on this team? Is there enough depth 
that they could win a game in Phoenix. And I think they can. You know, if you're going to ask me, if you say, hey, you know, gun to my head, I have to make a prediction, I'm going to go Phoenix. But I wouldn't be surprised if Dallas wins. And I'll tell you this, if Dallas makes it to the Western Conference Finals, it's not going to be such a walk in the park for the Golden State Warriors. You know, you're looking at a team that I think has improved under Jason Kidd from Rick Carlisle last year. I think he is, he's, he's more relatable to a lot of the players. Uh, certainly helps being a Hall of Fame player, but a guy that, you know, you talk about five years ago or so, was still playing in the NBA. There's some guys on the team that were, you know, at least, you know, starting out in the NBA around that time. So I think there's more of a relatability. And then you look at the best player on the court, and I think there's no doubt that the best player on the court in the Dallas Phoenix series is none other than Luka Doncic. And if they make it into the Western Conference Finals against the Golden State Warriors, the best player on the court is not going to be Steph Curry. It's not going to be Clay Thompson. It's not going to be anybody else on that Golden State Warriors team. It's going to be Luka Doncic. Now, Golden State may play him better defensively than Phoenix. Now, Phoenix plays good defense. Jay Crowder is a very good defender. Mikel Bridges does a very good job for the defensive side. They play defense in Phoenix, not like in, in Brooklyn, not like in Philadelphia. But it's going to be interesting. And then you had the other series, which I'm glad went seven games, Boston, Milwaukee. I don't think there's two teams in the NBA that match up any better with each other. And honestly, it's a flip of a coin. I said Boston was getting a bum deal. They were getting a little bit of disrespect, um, especially as easily as they beat Brooklyn. And everybody was saying, hey, the Bucks aren't Brooklyn. The Bucks are the defending NBA champions. Well, you may find out in two game sevens that your NBA finals from last year, that there's no chance that either one of those teams can get back there. Be interesting to see what, what happens. I still got Phoenix. I still got Boston. As my predictions stated earlier, we'll see how that ends up turning out. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. We'll be back with you probably Tuesday with another fresh edition of the Passball Show. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side. Chris Bryant was on the Chicago Cubs roster opening day. I have many leather-bound books my apartment smells of rich mahogany. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the freaking World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on living my life. I may come out as the biggest Major League Baseball manager apologist. It'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park. I'm not even supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. I'm a dude playing the dude disguises another dude. There are only two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Connie Mack, who you could say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as a manager, could be in as much as a pioneer. And what side of the spectrum they're on? Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside to hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if you were to fan.
man on the team that was batting and the ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100%, unequivocally, that pitcher was throwing at They put their tail between their legs and decided they're going to do exactly what they're told. You're damn well right. Better give him a contract extension. You're damn well right. Better make him the manager over the next series of years. 35 years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion. 